As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to remind you about our book competition. To be in with a chance to win a copy of Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. But now for today's show. This is the fifth episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis, and our focus here is on his early years at Magdalen College, Oxford. Alistair, paint a picture of what life would have been like as an Oxford Don for Lewis. I mean, for people who don't know anything about it, would it have been a bit like Harry Potter? (laughs) Well, I mean, it, it would have been a very, very strange life. But let me tell you what it would look like. Lewis became a fellow of Magdalen College, one of Oxford's most beautiful colleges. And um, he had his offices in the new building. Now it's Oxford, so new building means 18th century. But if you are able to go to Oxford and see this, you will see one of the most beautiful buildings in Oxford, surrounded by beautiful lawns and gardens. And Lewis had, I think, one of the finest views anybody could ever hope to have from his office. What would Lewis have been doing? Well, basically, um, he lived up in Headington, which is up um, towards the north of Oxford, and he would then have um, gone into um, Oxford every day. He would have um, taught students in his room by tutorial. In other words, this is the man who had been taught by tutorial, who was now teaching by tutorial. He would also give lectures in Oxford on English language and literature. And then in the evenings, Lewis would very often stay on for dinner on high table, which meant he would proceed into the dining hall at Morton College with full um, gown around him and, you know, enjoy conversation with his colleagues. So it was been a very formal way of life. But of course, all of this was concentrated during three eight-week terms. And outside that, Lewis's life was much more um, unstructured. And what would those Oxford tutorials have looked like? Because I guess for, for some people listening, they might think of a tutorial system where there's perhaps five or so people around one tutor. But in Oxford, it's, it's quite different from that, isn't it? Yes, at Lewis's time, um, it was one-to-one. So Lewis would meet with um, students. Um, and when I say students, I mean one student at a time for an hour. And basically, the student would be invited to prepare a paper um, on a topic agreed beforehand. And they would read it to Lewis and they would then argue about its contents and that we have numerous records of Lewis's tutorials because when Lewis became famous everyone started to say hey he taught me here's what here's how he did it and so you know Lewis had a prodigious memory so um 
the students would quote from a particular poet, Lewis would say, oh, I'm not sure that's right. And he would go and find the exact reference from his bookshelves and point out the error. Or even when the student made an obscure reference, Lewis would still be able to go and find it. So he was clearly a very, very um, able person. But again, um, two things I think are very often commented on by students. Number one, that Lewis really did know his material. He had internalized a vast amount of uh, material and therefore without ever needing to consult notes, he would be able to really have a very good conversation with the student about anything. And the other thing is this, when Lewis became a Christian, and of course we'll talk about this later, obviously um, students began to wonder, will Lewis try to convert me during my tutorials? And the, invariably, students report Lewis was completely professional. In his conversations and tutorials, it was always about English poetry and literature, and Lewis did not uh, talk about Christianity or in any way impose his views on them. Well, I suppose a lot of the books that he read as a child or earlier in his career would have really sort of, you know, given him a good grounding for a lot of that literature that he was beginning to tutor on. Absolutely, but Lewis had to do an awful lot of reading to really bring him up to speed, because um, at, at Oxford the English curriculum was beginning to be redeveloped, and therefore Lewis had to really make sure that he had read all the books and studied all the authors who were now part of the English curriculum at Oxford. But he, he mastered that quite quickly, and again he was able to internalise, he was able to quote from um, particularly Philip Sidney, one of his favourite uh, poets, uh, writers, but also others, um, uh, really remarkably well. And I think that that's an important point because Lewis, um, Lewis didn't just read these people; he he lived them. They were part of the way he thought as a person. And a few years after Lewis had become a fellow at Magdalen College, Lewis's father died. I mean, what impact do you think that had on him? It's a very good question because Lewis doesn't really talk about his father very much. Um, he did go back to be with his father during his final days, but um, Lewis came back to Oxford um, a, a week earlier than expected, and his father then died. Um, so Lewis, I think, felt a little bit guilty about not being there. But I think one of the problems was that Lewis had been awarded the fellowship of Magdalen College for a probationary period of five years. And after that time, um, the, his election would be confirmed and then he would have that job for the rest of his life. And the problem is that visit to his father um, meant that um, during the final year when um, he would be assessed as to whether he would get this job for life, um, it meant he would arrive late for the beginning of the first teaching term. And Lewis realised this might not be good news. So basically, his relationship with his father was not good. Um, it was slightly cool. And I have to say that um, Lewis um, um, really never rebuilt that relationship. But one thing that does strike me is this. I often wonder whether Lewis's relationship with his father was such that his death um, actually prompted Lewis to think more deeply about some of the questions in life. Mm. And why do you think that is? Well, one of the questions is to do with when, um, when Lewis was converted to Christianity. Was it in 1929, as Lewis himself suggests, or was it in 1930? Um, but certainly, um, Lewis's, um, Lewis clearly was stimulated by his father's death and to think about these things. The question was, was Lewis a Christian at that time? 
rejoicing his father's faith had kind of way made things okay? Or did Lewis's father's death make Lewis himself begin to think about deeper questions? In which case his conversion may have been slightly later. But we'll talk about that later, I think. And paint a picture of, of how this happened because Albert Lewis got sick. C.S. Lewis went over to see him, but he wasn't actually there, as you said, when in the moment when Albert Lewis died, nor was C.S. Lewis's brother Warney because he was away on military service. And how would that have made Lewis feel, C.S. Lewis feel, do you think, not being there for his father's death and, and acknowledging that his brother also wasn't there at the time? Well, I think Lewis felt very awkward about this. Again, you've got to understand what the expectations would have been in Northern Ireland at that time. And the expectation was clearly that dutiful sons go back to be with their father at the time of his death. And uh, everybody understood. Warney couldn't. Warney was in the army. Uh, Warney was miles away and wouldn't be able to get back. But C.S. Lewis was just um, in England. He could easily come back and be with his father for the final days of his life. So again, there's this expectation Lewis would have been there for his father's final days and made all the funeral arrangements, visited family, everything like that. And that, that just didn't happen. So again, there's this sense that Lewis wasn't really the dutiful son he ought to have been. And I know you mentioned that Lewis doesn't really talk about it that much, but do we know whether he regretted that? Does he talk about the fact that he kind of wished he had been there or wished he could have done more or perhaps that he wished that, you know, the relationship was in a better place when Albert Lewis died? There are um, indirect references to this in some of his later writings where Lewis does talk about um, the duties of son towards their father. And... Uh, hints that he's aware he didn't himself quite fulfill those duties. So I think there is this sense that um, he didn't do what was expected of him. I'm sure Lewis will be able to offer an explanation of that, but um, it doesn't look good from the outside, if I can put it like that. If you like, um, Lewis would have been seen not to have been a good son to his father at that time. Not long after Albert Lewis's death, Warney then moves to back to England and moves in to live with Lewis. I mean, was he already aware of Lewis's unorthodox living arrangements with Mrs. Moore? I think Warney um, was aware that um, things were complicated um, and um, in effect uh, was quite happy to live within the arrangements that Lewis and Mrs. Moore proposed. But I mean, basically, the three of them um, paid for this new house. Lewis had some money from his job. Uh, Mrs. Moore had some money because um, of her divorce settlement. And, and um, Warney had um, his pension from the army. So in effect, they had enough to buy this rather splendid house. And they could each have their own territory within it, so to speak. So it, it did make a lot of sense. Uh, and um, Warney might not have known the full details, but Warney was aware that um, there was a special relationship between Mrs. Moore and uh, Lewis, which I think was generally presented as um, she is the mother of my dear friend who died during the First World War. But that seems to have worked out. I mean, if there were tensions, um, there were contained tensions. 
And what was that dynamic like with Mrs. Moore, Maureen, Warney, C.S. Lewis, quite a lot of them under one house? How, how did that kind of work itself out? There are points where it, it's clear there were some tensions there. I mean, I, I personally think that um, Mrs. Moore was very good for Lewis. Um, Mrs. Moore was very, very sociable. And, and certainly during the early phase of the Oxford relationship, she had loads of people round to their, their, their house and Lewis had to kind of way learn certain social skills, which otherwise he might not have learned. So I think what we can say really is that this this relationship was perhaps slightly unusual, but actually they made it work. And that, that I think is the key point here, that between the three of them, they're able to bring enough money to be able to buy a rather nice house, which would do them all for the rest of their days. And um, it would give what each of them wanted. They were all looking for security. And William and, and uh, Warney, of course, and Lewis had this wonderful opportunity of recreating the the family atmosphere, the safe place of their days back in Belfast. Now that house is the Kilns, and obviously people can go and visit that today, can't they? They can, and they they should. It's, it's a very um, very moving experience to do so. Bear in mind when you go that uh, originally the house had a much larger bit of land around it that's been sold off so it's so actually you're seeing a much smaller version of what was there originally but you can go and see this and you can um, walk around it you can see um, the typewriter which Warney used for all of his correspondence and of course typed up some of Lewis's material you can um, see their library you know it, it, it's a it's a very good experience and around this time, Lewis forged a really important friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, we could obviously do a whole kind of podcast series on this important relationship, and maybe we will. Um, but how did Lewis and Tolkien first meet? Well, this, this is a fascinating story. Um, Lewis um, was tutorial fellow in English at Magdalen College, and that meant automatically he would be a member of the Faculty of English at Oxford University and attend faculty meetings. Now, those meetings um, were held at Merton College, not very far from Morden, and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, was present at those meetings. And for reasons we don't quite understand, uh, Lewis and Tolkien hit it off. Now, Lewis often reflected on this. I mean, it was very strange because Tolkien was a Catholic and actually quite open about this. And Lewis had grown up in Protestant Ulster, you know, uh, um, and kind of way, it wasn't he'd been taught to hate Catholics. It was more that Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland lived completely separate lives. They didn't interact. Lewis didn't have Catholic friends. And so Lewis was a bit suspicious of Tolkien, but they, they hit it off and they began to talk. And they began to talk about literary projects. And Tolkien began to talk to Lewis about a project that he had in mind, which we can now recognize as being a sort of, almost like a forebear of the Lord of the Rings. And Lewis thought, this is really interesting, and played this critical role of encouraging Tolkien, saying, this is really good, keep going. And Tolkien later reflected that for an awfully long period, he had only one serious reader, and it was C.S. Lewis. And that what C.S. Lewis offered him more than anything was simply encouragement. He needed that, and Lewis gave it to him. 
And actually that friendship solidified. And one of the things I found astonishing in researching the biography was seeing just how this friendship began. Two people unknown outside Oxford, Lewis and Tolkien. And, you know, here was me thinking, these guys are one of the best known authors in the world. And I'm reading about how they became friends when nobody ever heard of them. And you begin to see them blossom and they help each other to blossom. So it's just wonderful to, to read about that. And we're going to be talking a bit more about the impact that Tolkien had on Lewis's faith journey. But, you know, it was such a reciprocal relationship, this kind of encouragement in a literary sense, wasn't it? Because it, 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 was. wasn't, it wasn't just Lewis encouraging Tolkien, it, it was the reverse as well, wasn't it? Absolutely. They, they both um, loved literature. Um, although, um, basically, they, they focused on slightly different kinds of literature, um, they both really um, were very, very clued up about how stories can excite the imagination. And one of the things that really they both thought about a lot was the role of stories or narratives, or to use the technical word, myths, to be able to kind of capture imagination and at the same time um, provide information, a kind of uh, way of way of structuring the world. And Lewis and Tolkien were both fascinated by this. And of course, both of them wanted to write books that would in effect do this kind of thing. And they spent a lot of time talking about um, how other authors did this and how also each of them individually might do the same thing. So they were, if you like, um, on the same page together. They were really encouraging each other in their quest to think about how literature could be a way of in effect giving you a deeper understanding of reality. And that's obviously something that we're going to talk about more because that had a really key impact for, for Lewis's sort of final jump into faith. But but what I mean, did they both see myth in inverted commas as a similar thing or did they approach it in a different way? Because it was at that point Tolkien from a faith perspective, Lewis not from a faith perspective. That's right. Um, Tolkien was very, very clear that um, that Christianity could be thought of in these terms, in effect, as a story that is able to explain every other story that captures the imagination. And of course, um, Tolkien uh, knew an awful lot about um, Nordic myths. He was an expert in Old English, so he was really able to see this in action. Uh, Lewis was very interested in myth, but saw no connection at all Christianity. And we'll come back to that point. But uh, they, they, they formed this really important friendship. And actually, again, they were very different people. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, Tolkien had a reputation as being a terrible lecturer. He would kind of way, um, you know, he would look down at his notes. He, he would hardly ever raise his eyes, never make eye contact. And he mumbled in his lectures. So people kind of way found out very, very quickly. So um, uh, he had a very modest attention at his lectures. C.S. Lewis, because of this remarkable ability to internalize things, would walk into a lecture theater and without notes, in a rich voice, very, very engaging, give a lecture um, and captivate the audience. So in effect, um, a little bit of jealousy there because Tolkien mm. <laughs> had very minimal attendances. Lewis had massive attendances. So I think there's a, a very big difference there. But they both love literature and Tolkien had made connections between this idea of myth or narrative and Christianity, which Lewis had not. So when Lewis rediscovered Christianity, well, 
there was um, some very important ground that Kuhn could talk about, about the role of literature and stories in understanding and above all, communicating the Christian faith. Well, let's leave it there for the moment because we're going to be talking a lot more about those important conversations and Lewis's important journey in the next episode. But thank you so much, Alistair. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis.